HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Good morning and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street. Brunch is being served. Um, my show today is a couple of call-in guests. I'm really excited about this show. This is a kind of unusual show for me. I was uh, inspired by a press release. Um, my first guest is Jeanette Berenger, uh, who is part of the American Livestock Breed Conservancy. She joined the team in August of 2005, comes to the organization with 20 years of experience working with animals in the nonprofit sector, including in zoos, which I thought was wicked cool. Um, Jeanette's experience in facilitating research, organizing workshops and conferences, and applying technology to improve animal husbandry um, has enabled her to research, plan, and develop important breed conservation programs for the ALBC. My second guest uh, is Chris Ritteler. Ritteler. I'm saying that right, Chris, right? Hello? It's close enough. My own family can't get it. Okay. <laughs> um, Chris is the National Veteran Outreach Coordinator for the Farmer Veteran Coalition. Chris served in the United States Marine Corps from 2002 to 2006 as an infantryman with the 2nd Battalion and 6th Marines, as well as a member of the 2nd and 3rd Fleet of Anti-Terrorism Security Team. And after leaving active duty as a sergeant, he attended the University of California at Davis and holds a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and, I guess, Biology, because you have that in um, in uh, parentheses there, Chris. Um, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Both of you have great bios. I mean, I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm continually humbled by my guests. I feel like an incredible loser whenever I read these things. Um, Jeanette, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the American, um, uh, the American uh, Breed Conservancy group that you work with? American Livestock Breed, I should say. Let's be really specific because it is all about agriculture and livestock and the breeds that have gone out of favor in favor of um, commodity breeds. So tell us about that and, um, and the work you're doing particularly. Oh, sure. Um well, uh, America Livestock Breeds Conservancy is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, and uh, our, our primary mission is the genetic conservation of uh, livestock and poultry breeds. And um, it, it uh, confuses folks sometimes because they think we're, you know, just out to save every rare animal out there. And 
we actually look at it from a, a, a scientific approach and try and conserve the animals whose uh, genetics are somewhat unique, and if they were to disappear, then there's no way to recapture those genetics. And with some of the breeds, you're talking about, uh, you know, breeds that have been around for hundreds, even thousands of years. And uh, to, to lose that in one fell swoop because, you know, we're not paying attention is a real tragedy. And it happens all the time throughout the globe that you'll uh, lose native uh, poultry or livestock breeds. And so ALBC is the watchdog group for the United States, and we do have counterparts in other countries that do similar work. And um, so uh, we're based in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and we are a national organization. And we um, achieve our mission through a number of objectives. We uh, do a lot of um, census work on all the breeds and try and monitor how the populations are doing. Uh, we do field research to document the breeds, because a lot of these animals, they may have been around for a long time, but um, they may not necessarily have been well documented, and so we go out there to do that and talk to the people that keep them. And um, we also take that information and translate it into educational materials that help new farmers to understand how to work with these breeds and how to breed them properly. Um, we also do a lot of farmer education uh, because of the, uh, th this great movement that's been going on in the past five, ten years where people are really thinking about getting back to the land and raising their own food. And so there's been a huge upsurge of interest in working with the traditional breeds that used to be found on the farms back in the day. And uh, so we do a lot of uh, farmer education and um, uh one of the other things we do is breed rescue. Uh, for instance, I've got a group of goats here in, in North Carolina on an island that we need to catch because the predators have found their way onto the island, and um, we're in the process of formulating a, a capture plan to be able to uh, save those animals, and it turns out they're old-fashioned Spanish goats. And so from a genetic standpoint, they're, they're interesting and they're... Um, somewhat rare because uh, Spanish goats in this area have been crossbred out of existence uh, for the meat goat industry. So, uh, so we do the uh, breed rescues and a number of other things. And I guess one of the hardest things that uh, questions that I get um, people asking all the time is, what do you do? And there is no short answer. <laughs> day to day, we're never, it's never quite the same. I can <laughs> so see that. That's yeah, so that's it uh, in a nutshell, what we do. Do you also preserve, like, you know, sperm and embryos or sperm and uh, eggs? We do. Uh, like a some seed extent. bank? Yeah, we work with the National Animal Germplasm Program up in Colorado Springs, and uh, we do have a uh, semen collection that uh, had occurred a few years back, and um, all of the specimens are stored there, and we have a great relationship with those folks because if we ever have need for those genetics that uh, it's still our property and we can uh, take it out if we need it for an emergency say uh, you know a certain bloodline has disappeared and we really need to recapture that uh, we can go to um, the the uh, uh, 
the NAGP and be able to get some of those samples. So mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a pretty good relationship we have with them. That's amazing. We're going to come back to that, but uh, I wanted to get Chris a chance to talk about how um, he got involved in the Farmer Veteran Coalition and, and tell us a little bit about the, the FBC, and then um, we can talk about how you guys got together. Yeah, absolutely. So my, uh, my background, like you had mentioned earlier, was I got out of the Marine Corps, went to university, um, and I was just finishing up my degree when I kind of randomly got back in contact with a friend of mine who has been working in the veterans nonprofit world for better, basically the better part of the last decade. Um, she, we reconnected, and she said, hey, are you, do you know of any veterans that are looking for a job right now? And um, I was actually waiting for a lot of applications to my graduate programs to go through. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I am. I'm a veteran looking for a job. And so uh, just out of that kind of casual interaction, um, I went and interviewed and, and got hired on to the National Veteran Coordinator, uh, Outreach Coordinator position that we have. And uh, so I came into the job just knowing very basics about the program. It was a veterans nonprofit designed to assist veterans getting into agriculture which explains it in a nutshell, but it really is so much more. So the Farmer Veteran Coalition is set up to really do its best work functioning as a networking tool and an informational resource. Most of the veterans who contact us didn't grow up in agriculture. They decided that they wanted to get into farming, uh, could be any kind of farming, but they don't know where to start because they didn't grow up around the farm. So when they contact us, one of our primary things is, determining where they stand in terms of their knowledge and their background, and then pointing them in the right direction of the different groups that are going to be of the biggest assistance. A lot of them aren't even aware of the USDA as an entity. I mean, it, it, it really is that simple. So the best thing that we can do is start networking them. Hey, you need to talk to your county ag extension agent. Hey, you need to go and see these particular training people. Hey, this particular group is going to be able to finance your operation. You know, there aren't really a whole lot of grants out there. If we know of one, we'll point the veteran in the right direction. Most of the time, it's just a matter of networking them with the proper loan agencies, uh, working with them to put together a business plan, working with them to make sure that they can find the resources on what they need to be successful. We, in the past, have been able to match individuals with mentors. We have folks uh, in our mentoring network who are experts in their field. We have folks that have worked uh, in the production facilities for Driscoll Berries who have functioned as mentors in the past, Uh, folks that have been doing uh, livestock production. Um, Actually, the president of Nyman Ranch Pork is on our advisory board, and he's been a huge help in assisting a lot of our folks kind of getting off the ground and saying, hey, you really need to talk to this person if you're doing this production in this area. So really it comes down to how can we best give these veterans the knowledge that they're not going to necessarily have otherwise? How are we best going to be able to pair them for success in an industry that is really rather difficult to to get into from the ground up? And that's really where we see ourselves doing our you know, majority of our work and, and really feel the importance of that. Amazing. I think it's a great thing. I'm going to read a little paragraph from the um, from the press release that I got from the ALBC, which is what led me to both of you. Um, join the farm. You guys are holding a, um, the ALBC is having a, a workshop. Join the Farmer Veteran Coalition, the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy, May 4 through 5, uh, for a two-day intensive workshop that will help transform today's veterans into tomorrow's far- farmers. The first of its kind workshop will educate and train America's servicemen and women on the skills necessary to steward some of America's most historic and endangered farm animals. So so the fact that, I mean, I, this is what really sort of blew my mind was 
you know, getting into the historic breeds and and steering um, steering vets into that sector of ag. So um, what I'd love to have you both do is comment on sort of how you two organizations got together and why you felt that that particular partnership would be um, successful for the farmers, you know, for the veterans especially. Uh, I guess I could start. Uh, well, I, I'd first come across the Farmer Veterans Coalition when I'd uh, gone to the EcoFarm Conference in California, and a, a friend of mine um, was a loan officer uh, that had helped the organization uh, with some of the vets needing farm loans, and she was telling me what a great organization they were. And, um, you know, we eventually were able to uh, connect because... Um, I was increasingly getting more phone calls in our office from veterans, and uh, and we go to a lot of uh, public events like Mother Earth News Fair and National Heirloom Expo, and the last Mother Earth News Fair I was at, we had a boatload of vets come to our table, and I'm like, you know, we really need to do something about this, and, and so I picked up the phone and, and was able to connect with, with Chris, and Chris had uh, told me that, you know, of the vets that wanted to work with livestock, a lot of the time they wanted to specifically work with heritage livestock. And um, the real uh, kicker that really convinced me that we were, you know, onto something that had a need was, uh, you know, I was in my office, it was the end of the day one day, and I got a call from Afghanistan (laughs) from a soldier over there who... Uh, was planning on coming back from overseas that spring, and he wanted absolutely to make sure there were melee chicks waiting for him when he got back. <laughs> and so um, spent a good uh, half hour trying to track down some breeders and melees for him and connected him with them. Uh, but I thought, my goodness, <laughs> you know, that just blew my mind. And so, uh, you know, in doing some brainstorming with the uh, uh, rest of our staff and with Chris, we thought, you know, putting a workshop on to at least test the waters to see if if people really do want to uh, learn about this stuff. And, and uh, you know, as time's going on, the response has been pretty good. We've got people that are coming all the way from California and Florida and Virginia and, and just people from all over coming to the workshop. And I'm um, I'm hoping it's going to be filled up. <laughs> yeah, it sounds you know? like it. Chris, what do you think explains the interest in uh, returning veterans, you know, who are interested in agricultural in general? Why are they specifically interested in heritage breeds? What do you think the connection is there, and how do they find out about them? I mean, most Americans aren't aware that there are heritage breeds. They're not aware of any yeah. livestock breeds, frankly. What- yeah, no, absolutely true. Um, and, I, and I think there's a couple of different reasons why you're seeing this veteran interest in the heritage breeds. The primary one is I think you're finding because a lot of the vets don't have that background in agriculture, they're not constrained by a particular thought process of what you have to do in order to be successful in agriculture. So what they're doing is more taking a real close look at their situation and and knowing that because a lot of times they're on limited financials, they have to be smart. So by going to the heritage breeds, they're finding that, you know, they can fit a niche market. They don't have to have quite the same level of, of infrastructure put in place. I'll, I'll take cattle for a perfect example. Um, we've got a couple of vets that are actually in upstate New York that are doing small-scale cattle, and they're working specifically with smaller heritage breeds. 
And there's two reasons for that. One, they don't have a lot of land. So they need smaller cattle. They need something that's not going to take up as much feed. Um, they need something that is going to basically work with their land properly because they can't do feedstocks. And what we're seeing you know, out here in California where I'm at, where we have these huge feedstock facilities that just really aren't made to work with the heritage breeds. So vets can say, hey, listen, I want this particular breed of cow. It's going to work on my land. It's going to work perfectly for what I want. And it fits a niche market. You know, someone says, hey, I want this particular type of cow because, for whatever reason. They have that now. They can provide for that. Um, we have folks doing the same thing with chickens. We have folks doing the same thing with turkeys. And they're finding that there's a real desire, on, and especially pigs. The, I mean, absolutely, pigs. A lot of the high-end uh, butcher shops and charcuteries are really going after a particular breeds of heritage pigs right now. And so all of our pork producers are saying, hey, listen, I really need to, if they're not already in heritage breeds, they're thinking real long and hard about making that switch. <laughs> so it, the, the biggest thing is for a veteran who's now getting into agriculture, especially with the state of agriculture as it is in the United States, they have to identify those niches. They have to be able to move into those rapidly and for a minimal cost and be successful. And the heritage breeds allow them to do that, a, a, an identified, ready source for them to just go and pursue. And that's really kind of the big thing for that's, that's determined that outcome. I think that's fascinating. I mean, you know, given that they're, you know, these are young kids, maybe some of them haven't even finished college and they're coming out of the service and they're recognizing a trend, you know, that is literally sweeping the nation and uh, maybe not so much in the middle part of the country, but certainly on the coasts and and identifying that as a genuine revenue stream that they can get into right away and start generating real money uh, to grow their farms with. So you guys, we're going to take a 30 second sponsor drop, which my friend Jack is about to arrange for us and you stay on the line and we'll be right back in just a couple minutes or not even in 30 seconds with more of straight no chaser and the american livestock breed conservancy and the veterans farms veteran coalition this program has been sponsored by the hearst ranch at hearst ranch Ranch manager Cliff Garrison describes their philosophy. Raising cattle on grass is both an ancient practice and one that is standard in much of the modern world. Sometimes the old ways are the right ways. We believe that our methodology is the right one for us. For more information on their premium grass-fed beef, visit hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me, I have Jeanette Berenger from the American Livestock Breed Conservancy and Chris Riddler, from the, uh, who is the National Veteran Outreach Coordinator for the Farmer Veteran Coalition, which really people, everyone should go and take a look at the website there. Actually, both of these websites, but it's just a fascinating uh, program that they're running. So, um, guys, we were talking a little bit about why vets are coming back and, and identifying um, heritage breeds as a... Uh, you know, as a genuine opportunity uh, to get into the marketplace quickly uh, with relatively little infrastructure and relatively little investment. Um, but let's also talk a little bit about um, about veterans and unemployment. Um, Chris, this is really directed to you. 
One of the things that I read when I was doing research for this show um, was that uh, your executive director, Michael O'Gorman, said that federal data showed that 16 percent of Americans lived in rural communities and 45 percent of the military members who are returning, obviously, from uh, are coming originally from rural areas and they face very high levels of unemployment when they do return to their home communities. But I also read in GI Jobs, um, which seemed like a real propaganda tool, frankly, like a real pep talk for veterans. I don't know, Chris, you can comment on that later. Um, that overall unemployment for vets was less than the national average. Um, Chris, what do you think about that? Is unemployment for veterans in general less than the natural national average? And um, given that a lot of your guys are coming back to rural communities, do you think that this really is viable for them? Or are they going to have to go elsewhere with all the groovy skills they've learned in the military service? Well, I'll, I'll address that, that first point um, about the national unemployment rate. Absolutely, that is untrue. The veteran unemployment rate is higher than the national average. And I have the data directly in front of me right now. There was a congressional report that came out in June of 2011. Now, obviously, the data has changed a little bit, but not significantly so. Mm-hmm. Um, this The unemployment rate, the national unemployment rate for an American veteran of the post-9-11 era is 11.5%. That's fully three percentage points higher than the national average. That's right. I think the national uh, average is 8.7 at this point, right? Something like that. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, we're looking at these numbers absolutely every day. Now, the unemployment rate in general for veterans, now that's veterans from World War One. well, actually the last one of them just passed away recently, yeah. but World War Two, especially onward, is actually right just above the national average. But Specifically, when we're looking at folks that are returning from 9/11, post-9-11 era, that's mm-hmm. my generation, directly, we're looking at a very high unemployment rate. In fact, I can just, I mean, there, the, the state, some of the states, there's just a huge disparity. Michigan, for example, has a 29.4% unemployment rate for post-9-11 era veterans. Jesus. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And in comparison, veterans as a whole in Michigan are 16% unemployment rate. So there is a huge gap disparity uh, in this new generation of vets. Now, there are some states where they do have lower unemployment, but it's also state-dependent and it's population-dependent. North Dakota, for example, has one of the lowest unemployment rates. But it very, very much changes from state to state. Again, on average, however, we are looking at an extremely high unemployment rate for the post-9-11 era veterans. So Um, agriculture presents a real genuine opportunity for veterans to find a brand new niche. And do you think that, I mean, like the guys from Michigan who are coming out of, you know, uh, obviously the auto industry, like their parents probably worked in the auto industry. They grew up in Detroit or around Detroit or Flint or wherever. Um, Are they, you know, they're coming back and there is, okay, the auto industry is doing better than it was. But still, there's, you know, there is uh, relatively little in the way of manufacturing jobs available. So are they... That's why they're going into ag, do you think? Or is, I mean, I guess my question really is you learn a lot of skills in the military, right? And we see a lot of commercials about how these guys come back and they're recruited by all these different companies because they've got such great leadership skills and team building and blah, blah, blah. And they know all this groovy stuff, especially, you know, uh, how to fix things or whatever. I mean, I don't know what you guys do. I really don't, besides, you know, the obvious. Well, that, that, that right there, that statement, I don't know what you guys do, yeah. is the single largest factor. And here's, Here's Thank you. the whole Good. the whole crux of the problem. Excellent. Less than ten percent of the United States has ever served in the U.S. military. Less yes. than ten percent of our 
current population has ever served in the U.S. military. So there's a huge disconnect between the knowledge base of what a veteran does in whatever their job is. Now, we have a veteran's, I mean, the groups of jobs that, that are done in the military is, is just hugely diverse. We have people who work as weathermen or weather people. We have folks who are doing what I did in the infantry. We have folks that work in admin positions. Mm-hmm. And here's what we're finding with employers that are looking to hire, and they say they want to hire a veteran. Well, the folks that had highly technical specialized jobs, they're getting hired no problem. Right. It's very easy for them to show this is exactly what I did. So guys who were in telecommunications or something like that, yeah. that's they're getting exactly. hired right away. I knew a guy... Yeah, I knew a guy who got out of the Marine Corps after four years, and he was a radio operator, specifically worked with satellite communications. Before he got out, he had a job offer for $80,000 working for a defense industry contact. Right. That, that's awesome. That's rare. Now, when you talk about someone like myself, I have a lot of skills. I was an infantry sergeant. I led Marines in combat back home. I had to make sure that they were dressed. I had to make sure that they had all their equipment. I had to make sure they were trained. I had to make sure that they went where they were supposed to whenever they had to. I had to deal with their financial situations. If I had a Marine who was in you know, some sort of dire straits because they made a mistake on, in buying a car or they wouldn't, weren't handling their personal finances right or if somehow there had been a pay mix-up in their financial paperwork, I had to be able to take care of that. So I have leadership. I have um, you know, background in administrative paperwork, you name it. There's a lot of different stuff, but there's not that perception because I was in the infantry. There's job websites that exist out there in order to, what they say, help veterans transition into the sectors of, of work, of an employment in, in the civilian world. And what you do is you type in your military occupational specialty code, and it pops up with a whole bunch of different jobs and skills and whatever. I typed in my job, and it gives back no civilian overlap. Wow. It tells me that basically my entire experience could be boiled down to I can't do any jobs in the civilian world. Now that's a spirit crusher, Chris. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. That's a total spirit crusher, man. (laughs) What what if someone, what if someone did, what if someone was a, uh, was a diesel mechanic, but they don't want to be a diesel mechanic anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a lot of skills, but what if they want to transition into something else? Why should we be constrained by what we did in the military? Mm-hmm. What if we want to get into farming? What if we want to have a different style of life? And there's no reason why we shouldn't. So I, I think that it more, more than the skills that vets come back with and the perception of what they have or what they don't have, I think it really comes down to these folks want a different way of life. They want to be farmers. Uh, and, and let's face it, the job market in general, not just for veterans, but the job market in general for a lot of these kind of trades positions are not particularly good, especially unless you have a technical skill. And most of the military does not have a really, you know, what, what we think of, especially in the service sector industry that we have now, Internet and, and um, telecommunications and stuff like that, you know, that number of folks is actually relatively small versus all the other stuff. So... Why can't we transition into agriculture? Why shouldn't we encourage, especially with the factors of, you know, for every two farmers retiring, there's only one going back in. Right. We have these food deserts all over. You want to talk about Michigan specifically? Huge, huge food desert up there. Why shouldn't someone look at that and say, hey, listen, I want to give back to my community, or, hey, I just want to work on the farm. I, it, why not? And, and my, that's my question is, is why, why shouldn't they, you know, irrespective of, of the training and the difficulties they have finding a job in 
particularly whatever sector they came from, you know, why shouldn't they just go into ag? I think it's brilliant. I mean, I, I, I fully support it. And, and in a little while, we're going to talk a little bit about how whether or not the government uh, and the v- Veterans Administration, et cetera, are also supporting it. But in the meantime, I'd like to ask Jeanette, um, how will this infusion of new farmers affect the endangered breed list? And will you guys be providing um, guidance in terms of livestock choices and, and how you know best to match livestock breeds to particular areas or regions in the country and so forth? I mean, do you guys have that enough sort of manpower and enough uh, outreach to be able to manage that? Well, we do that, uh, you know, quite often for, for folks that call into the office, and a lot of my time is spent walking people through the process of deciding what breed's going to fit their expectations uh, the best. And, um, you know, we, we walk them through, you know, say they're going to have chickens. Okay, do you... Um, uh, do you want egg chickens or do you want meat chickens? What part of the country do you live in? Is it cold? Is it hot? Are they going to be free range? Are they going to be in a chicken tractor? And and you know, walk them through all these questions, and uh, it, it helps us to narrow down the number of choices. And ultimately, what we want is for Mother Nature to do most of the work, so that um, you don't have to have a lot of inputs into keeping these animals happy and healthy. Uh, for instance, you know, a Chanticleer chicken, they're a breed that was de- developed in Quebec by monks, and they're very cold-hardy and really good winter layers. Well, you wouldn't want to see one of those in, say, Florida. You know, they're tight-feathered birds that are going to do miserable in, in hot weather. Mm-hmm. Even though they're great winter layers, there are a lot of reasons why you probably shouldn't have that breed there. And... Um, one of the exciting things we find with this partnership and, and working with the vets is, oddly enough, the vast majority of the people we work with with heritage breeds are 50 years old or older. <laughs> and um, it, it's been hard to access a, a younger generation of folks that can become the next generation of master breeders. And um, ALBC is working to be the link between you know, this past knowledge and, um, you know, getting it into the hands of the next generation that's going to be working with these animals. That makes and a so lot of sense. Yeah, it, so it's very exciting to, to have uh, younger folks and uh, getting involved because these are exactly the people that we need to be uh, working with in order to make sure there's another generation of stewards. And, and so... Um, it seems like a perfect marriage for for what we need to do from the conservation side of things and also to to help folks with finding a niche market that they could make a you know, halfway decent living on. Well, that's that's kind of leads me right into my next uh, series of questions, because um, one of the things that discouraged uh, industrial livestock production from growing heritage breeds, of course, is, um, you know, the, the feed conversion ratio isn't good enough. It doesn't, you know, it's not as profitable as um, what they have now, where you, you know, muscle up animals really fast. Uh, you can do it on this very specific diet. They give them a lot of extra inputs and vitamins and so forth. And, um, and that's not something that really works, <clears throat> excuse me, in the heritage breed uh, continuum. So um, 
you know, I, I'm sort of fascinated by where these guys are going with their with their uh, heritage breed livestock. Are they working specifically with uh, farmers markets? Are they finding restaurants that they can connect to? Does the ALBC help them with that? Or is there other organizations where they can co-op? And also, what do they do about infrastructure issues that face every uh, small scale farmer, i.e. production and distribution facilities? Like, how, how do all of those pieces of the puzzle fit into, you know, setting up a, a returning vet with a, you know, who buys himself a farm and he gets himself a load of uh, chicks or pigs or whatever. And then, you know, duh, okay, I've grown them. Now what? Like, where do they go from there? How do they get hooked up with all of that stuff? Well, we do a lot of that. Uh, we have some very good friends uh, in uh, Chef's Collaborative mm-hmm. and also with the, the folks from Slow Food. And we've had some very successful relationships uh, between our farmers and the chefs and one of the obstacles we have is, is that with some of these breeds, we don't actually know what they're good for as far as, um, you know, what products they may um, most effectively be used to produce. Uh, a great example is the guinea hog, which uh, they were a small homestead hog, uh, didn't get much bigger than 250 pounds, which is... Um, you know, not much for a commercial guy, uh, you know, not worth their time, and they're slower growing, and they're very fatty, and not a lot of people were eating them. You know, there were so few that, um, you know, there just wasn't a lot of animals to be able to um, process, and then we got to the point where the population started growing, and then, you know, we had some calls that uh, we could start getting into the hands of the chefs, and we had a gentleman that we hooked up with through Slow Food Charleston, and uh, he's a great chef. His name's Craig Deal, and he um, actually went to bat for us and got a couple of guinea hogs from one of our members in South Carolina and took it upon himself to uh, experiment with with the meat and see what could make it shine. And um, as it turns out, the guinea hog is fabulous for charcuterie and Mm -hmm. cured meats, and that the fat was very, very white and very appealing and um, very flavorful. And he has just made the guinea hog the toast of Charleston, (laughs) whereas they were, I mean, seriously, they were featured in the Charleston Food and Wine Fest just last weekend. Fantastic. And um, there's still not a boatload of guinea hogs out there. But this chef really understands that they're rare and that he can't get, you know, 20 hogs a month. He's, he's got to get what he can. And so, you know, he, he uses it at a, as a featured item periodically. Sure. It's not on the tables every day. And that's uh, one of the things that we, we actually try to get the, the new folks that are coming into Heritage Breeds to understand is, you know, you have to start slow, you have to build up your customer base, you have to build up your stocks. You know, these breeds are rare. <laughs> and you have to so, know what you're, what you're going, what, what you can sell them as. Um, we have to, unfortunately, wrap it up, Jeanette. So okay. I just have one more question for um, Chris before we say goodbye, and I want you guys to give your websites real quick. Um, Chris, one of the things, there are two things I wanted to ask you. One is, do you see um, a future in which um, your farmers, the guys who you're working with, and Jeanette, this, you can answer this too, um, are branded as veteran-raised? I mean, do you see this as a marketing tool for you? Because I sure do. I mean, coming from a public relations background, I'm thinking, oh my God, if somebody came to me and said, you know, these pigs were raised by, you know, a group of veterans in the Southwest or something like that, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm going to support that group and I'm going to buy these pigs. Do you see that as something that you would, you know, encourage your farmers to develop a co-op like that? 
most of them have already started on that route. On um, the veteran raised? You know, yeah, they're very, they're very, very savvy men and women. Excellent. I mean, let's face it, and, and you have to be these days. But we, we definitely, even on a lot of their farm stands, you mm-hmm. know, they'll, they'll say grown by a veteran or, or you know, veteran raised or. A lot of them incorporate aspects of their service into their farm titles. Um, we have a guy right. down in Georgia who's got a great little diversified operation, and it's called Devil Dog Farms, and he's got basically a Marine Corps bulldog as the, as this the kind of the star logo for his farm. I love he's it. actually converted an old military truck into a portable farm stand with a walk-in fridge unit, <laughs> and, and you know he's, leave, wow. he's, he's left it painted in camouflage. Brilliant and. His entire thing is he's like, listen, I know this is going to work, yeah. um, it, and it's a great conversation starter, and that's exactly what it is. And, and so he's not the only one. There's lots of them that are doing stuff right. like this. Well, unlike the Vietnam War, which I remember very, you know, because I was part of that generation, um, you know, the vets who are coming back now, I think people feel a real obligation to honor and, you know, thank them for their service to the country, uh, particularly for wars that m- many of us did not support. So um, I-, I love to hear that. And then uh, one last question, and then we really do have to go. Um, Chris, is Congress and the VA supporting your vets coming back? And are they are there grants in the works? Is the Farm Bill addressing this? Uh, you know, is there legislation that is, um, you know, coming into place to help veterans achieve the goals, uh, not just, you know, not just in general for jobs, but specifically for jobs in agriculture? Uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this real recent push, like in the last three weeks from the USDA, to really start looking into more programs. Right now, it's, it's kind of just uh, an idea more than an actual program. Now, the Small Business Administration does have something called the Patriot Loan, which is a small business loan that's being made available for veterans, specifically disabled veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, in terms of agriculture-specific support, uh, a lot of it is, yeah, we'd love to support the veterans, but there's just not any programs in place right now, which is all the more important for uh, coordination between these different groups that exist out there, like ALBC, uh, groups like Farmer Veteran Coalition, groups, any number of ones that are designed to work with beginning ranchers and farmers to really kind of pool their resources and say, hey, listen, how can we get these people started? Because there simply aren't the resources and the federal support that we would like to see currently. Sure. And that being said, we have a ton of support internally from the USDA, uh, specifically their risk management agency for a lot of our programs. They've been very, very good at you know providing their resources in terms of, of knowledge and um, uh, inter inter service coordination, things like that. You know, we've had them come out and speak at some of our conferences and workshops in the past. But I mean, they just don't have the ability to just push through a program that just gives money to a veteran who's looking to start. Um, or you know, even training, specific training programs yeah. that veterans can enlist Absolutely. in as soon as they come out of the service. Well, guys, I'm sorry to say, Chris, I'd love to have you back. I'd love to have both of you back. But, Chris, I'd love to talk more about what, you know, what veterans are doing in ag. I think that's a really interesting, um, really interesting topic. Um, I want people to uh, be aware that your websites are the following. Uh, folks, give your websites, please. Uh, ours is uh, ALBC-USA.org. That's right. And you can take a look and see, uh, learn more about the workshop that's coming up in, um, in May or April or whatever it is. It's May. May. Yeah. So, right. May, May 4 and 5, I think. And, um, and Chris, uh, tell us about the FVC. It's fvc.org, I think, right? It, it's farmvetco.org. Farmvetco. F-A-R-M-V-E-T. Mm-hmm. 
CO.org. That's great. Listen, thank you both very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been very interesting. And um, Chris, I'd like to talk more uh, at another date about this. Maybe we can do a little um, article together about something. So um, once again, this has been a fabulous, fabulous episode of Straight No Chaser. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thanks to my sponsor, the Hearst Corporation and their fabulous grass-fed beef. Um, Next week, stay tuned. We will have the one and only Steve Jenkins uh, in the studio with me, along with uh, Michelle Buster. Is that right? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, we'll be talking cheese and olive oil and imports and exports and all of the inner workings of the food industry and um, well thanks Jack really appreciate your help today and uh, thanks for listening folks we'll see you next week take care bye bye thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.